And now, the unforgiving passage of time through the stars under impulse power brings you yet another episode of Old Taku in Space. Featuring the Alabama immigrant who gave up Koneka sausage to become a freshly minted Florida man that writes neo-noir stories about his former town, Captain Jared Nelson. And his right-hand man, the should-have-sent-a-poet-navigator who spent so much time looking for his lost bottle of beer that he abandoned both his post and his habit, Ink. And the digital world with the only transmitter that matters to this misfit crew because it makes all of this possible. The Anagamers blog. When we last left off, Jared and Inc. said goodbye to a series that had not yet finished being adapted by talking about the Space Brothers Zero prequel movie. We have another great title to discuss in store for you, but first... Space News! Um, I have not read any of these. We are doing it live. Let's grow and learn together, shall we? So the ISS, my God, Inc., this is... Why, why do you have to lead with this one that makes me feel like a pile of fucking dust? Because the ISS was a huge focal point in Space Brothers, so I thought, wh- why not? Well, like... fair, fair, and on brand for Otaku in space, no doubt. However, <laughs> the ISS is old enough to rent a car on its own now. <laughs> it's now 25 years old, and um, NASA apparently is going to Xanadu it into oblivion. So essentially, and like if you've paid attention to any kind of of space news the last you know year or two, conversations have been going on about the aging ISS modules the conversation around, you know, when they're going to end of life, the whole thing. And, you know, curiously, you know, I think like what would replace it, right? So there's, you know, I think really in, in this article, uh, which we'll have in our show notes, uh, really talks a lot about potential successors to the ISS and what we might go, what we might do from here. Nothing in space is fast, um, or at least space development is fast. And so it's going to take several years and hopefully we, we haven't destroyed ourselves or um, Ultron hasn't killed us by then. But um, <laughs> there, there's a few different things. I think one of, one of the things that will be interesting, and it mentions it in the article, is the prospect of private companies and the role they'll play in this next era of, of space and our, and our slow, painfully slow stepping out of our cradle and into the stars with, you know, things like SpaceX and uh, companies like Boeing, you know, working on things that would be, you know, at least in theory, compatible with things that we would be doing with with any government-led stuff like the European Space Agency or NASA or our beloved JAXA. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting. There's a couple of couple different companies bidding for what the next gen uh, the ne- the next gen sort of laboratory of the stars would be. It's really early news right now, but uh, there will be more to come on that soon. And you know, in terms of how we would end the ISS, um, you know, eventually it's going to just drift in the atmosphere, right, and like burn up. Yep, burn it with fire. It's kind of sad, really. <laughs> or actually burn it with friction would be, I guess, more <laughs> the actual thing. Yeah. It's sad, though, because it's such a, I mean, that's that's that was such a pivotal 
milestone in the history of, of our early early efforts to learn more about space and learn more about our existence and and science in space as well. And, you know, it's it's And it was just such a symbol of collaboration too. Yeah. Like no no matter what was happening on this little blue marble, like up there um, you know, there was science being collaborated upon by nations who were warring underneath. Right. Um, you know, no matter the national divisions, like up there, it's like, nah, man, if we don't do our shit, <laughs> we're kind of doomed. So uh, everything up there was perfect. Well, <laughs> I doubt perfect, but... The, the article does mention, though, uh, that the first two ISS modules um, were docked in... Uh, 1998, December 6th, 1998. And if you think about, not to get deep into geopolitics, like not quite 10 minutes into Otaku in space, but um, very different era, uh, you know, geopolitically. 9-11 was a few years away yet. We were really still seeing the dust settle from the Cold War. Of course, you had, um, you know, Bosnia and, and Kosovo, um, that whole that whole area was was getting ready to, uh, or actually I think was in the middle of conflict at the time, and we've relatively speaking, you know, and maybe maybe it's just my age that colors this because I was I was just eighteen then, uh, but it was a it was a relatively safer time I think, at least geopolitically like overall like it's I I, I think you could argue that now we are in a much much darker, <laughs> much darker place, and and, and it kind of makes me wonder if we're even like can can the collaboration happen that you know brought us to the ISS? You know, as long as there are like minded people with like minded dreams, I think it can. That was beautiful, sir. What's up next? Up next, we have uh, colliding space junk makes noise that can be heard from Earth, and uh, kind of what this is is uh, there's. Uh, a bunch of space debris surrounding Earth from all sorts of things that we've sent up there and remnants that we've sent up there that are colliding with each other and generating more debris. And uh, it's a huge growing problem because all these little bits and pieces that measure anywhere between 0.4 inches and 4 inches uh, can cause serious damage to not only uh, other pieces uh, of debris up there and explode them, they can also uh, cause damage to ships and stations and other equipment that we send up there. Tracking it is almost impossible due to how small some of these pieces are. So now we've found that certain collisions spawn uh, electromagnetic sound. And that can be used to detect these smaller pieces of debris, even though it's very faint. Um, uh, scientists are working on a way to detect that noise better so that now the uh, agencies in charge of space debris uh, tracking can sort of keep a better eye on things and inform uh, astronauts and launch procedures of safer paths or safer safer uh, launch dates and such. So uh, let's let's keep hoping that happens. Absolutely. You know, space debris, you don't say. That might be topical for today, even. Um, hmm. Yeah, hmm. <laughs> uh, next on our Space News docket uh, is a story about the U.S. Space Force. They're wanting to track 
what they're calling abnormal obs- uh, observables with unknown origins in Earth's orbit. I'm just going to go ahead and, and do it because you probably have already done it, listeners, by now. But aliens, like I just I had to say it. <laughs> like for sure. Uh, it's it's aliens, guys. Um, yeah, so they want to be able to track stuff that they can't exactly figure out what it is. There is, you know, they're calling it space domain awareness, which sounds very, you know, military science That's great. It's fitting because this is coming from the U.S. Space Force. <laughs> yeah, it's apropos. Still fucking, I hate that name. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully we rebrand or something. Um, or just, you know, let NASA do NASA things. But anyway, they are also looking at things by, you know, a lot like space debris, um, you know, the growing number of commercial satellites, you know, meteoroids that come through, aliens, um, solar flares and what happens there, also aliens. Um, and, you know, th- there's there's also threat responses to, to each of these things. You know, you, you kind of build this plan of here's all the different risks that can happen and here's what you do with it. The good news is that some of this stuff, you know, is probably applicable across lots of different applications. It's not just like fighting aliens or, or fighting, you know, whoever we think is a threat this week or next week. But it's interesting that, we're already starting to think about these more logistical type things because it, it speaks to, you know, militarily, unfortunately, uh, but but also, y- you know, just in terms of, of more traditional scientifically driven exploration, you know, thing, things like meteorites, satellites, all, all of this stuff getting better at detecting it, where it's coming from is going to be really important. It also, you know, building some sort of network that would help people see rogue objects or something like that could be helpful if other countries with militaries that have space elements start doing stuff, which, um, you know, <laughs> like I, like we just talked about a minute ago, very different environment from the, uh, the early 90s or the mid-late 90s, actually, um, and, and the collaborative kind of spirit. Um, That's actually a part of the story, uh, is developing nations, developing their own space program. Those are part of the unknown objects because they're not communicating with the world's, uh, the other developed countries' space programs. So they're sending stuff up, but we don't know that they are. So that can cause danger, of course. But one of the side benefits of this is not only being able to track their stuff to be able to uh, put ours up there safely, but also to provide them guidance with what they could do uh, better or learn from what they have done too. So it's a, it's a good system for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, taking the long view, um, having a system that better identifies stuff to make sure that people can't just throw stuff up into space whenever they want, um, that we at least recognize when it's there, I think is a net good for everybody, to your point. All right. And I think uh, our final bit of space news for you, because we don't want to keep you here, even though we could talk for hours and hours, uh, is that everybody can relax easy. The tomato that was lost in space eight months ago on the ISS has been found. Oh, thank God. <laughs> One of the astronauts thought the astronaut who lost it had ate it. And there was a big kerfuffle above the ISS, or, or on the ISS. And uh, that, that one astronaut has been vindicated. The uh, tomato had floated away, 
and despite a routine check that the tomato is not blocking an air vent or uh, other critical system, uh, it was found in its little plastic baggie somewhere in a corner, uh, just sort of floated off, which happens in the space station, because it's space. So huzzah. This tomato is like... Please, please don't think of this as like a tomato. Tomato. This is a space tomato. Th- yeah, this is a this is a wee tiny tomato. This is this is almost like the little tomatoes you put on your salad. It's about that big. So even even in something like the ISS, rogue tomatoes can be hidden for a while. But you know, vindication for astronaut Frank Rubio. Hashtag justice for Frank. You know that he's <laughs> no longer being villainized. As a as an unauthorized tomato eater, I guess you could say. And that wraps up our space news. So yeah, welcome back to Old Taku No Radio. <laughs> After a minute or two, I am Jared as usual. I am joined as always by our anime poet laureate Inc. And today so- we are talking about. A wonderful, I think, 2004 vintage. It certainly has that sort of look uh, to it, uh, if I'm wrong about the era. But I think it's 2004, and it's Planetess, which is an anime based off of a manga by a guy you might know named Makoto Yukimura, who I think right now is probably really well known for the uh, ongoing uh, manga series uh, Vineland Saga, or Vinland Saga. It's still going, uh, as far as I know, and it's fantastic. And the anime is on Netflix. But enough about that. Uh, before he did Vinland Saga, he did uh, a, a manga Planetess, which is a pretty cool, I guess you would call it a hard science fiction space slice of life slash drama story. But before we get into uh, Planetess, actually, a little bit about... Our hiatus, we have been off the internet air, if that is such a thing, for about two years. Since April 30th of 2021, which was our last episode, very, very excited to uh, to be able to uh, sit in the co-host chair uh, with Inc. again. And also very excited to read off some names of wonderful patrons who have donated and become members of the Antigamers Patreon which you can go to patreon.com, I think it's slash Gamers, and look at the different tiers there. There's still lots of great uh, content and podcasts coming out uh, from Evan and the gang. So um, if you have not been to the site or been into uh, listening some of the, to some of the podcasts of late, I, I definitely recommend it. And Inc., would you like to read out some names of the wonderful people who in our long, our long hibernation, have uh, become patrons. Sure. Uh, Dusty Stars, Nice or Nice, Dr. Glendale, Talavan Cohen, Brian T., Fat Drunk Otaku Friend, I know that guy, or gal, uh, and uh, GR. Thank you, everybody. All right, now time for your summary. All right, so uh, this is my own clunky summary of the wonderful property known as Planetus, and specifically the anime. Uh, Set in the near future of 2075, Planetus is a sci-fi venture with geopolitical and socioeconomic themes that starts out as a silly office comedy with romantic elements. 
in the space debris section, not so affectionately referred to as half section by most. A small team is tasked with collecting and removing debris, some as small as a pocket watch, to as large as like a defunct satellite, from space to protect commercial and military space vessels and the people aboard them. We join the crew at the time, same time as I, Tanabe, uh, who is taken under the wing of the previous newest member, uh, who was, who's referred to as Hachimaki because of a headband he wears. Uh, his name is uh, Hashirota Hoshino. Yeah, you know, Yukimura is really, really great at this, um, generally. But um, I think even this is, I think, his first series. It's the first one I'm aware of, by him, at least. It is set in 2075, and Ink kind of telegraphed it a little bit in his synopsis. It's it's a really clever blending of lots of different types of stories in a hard science fiction milieu. Um, I'm using hard science fiction in the in the terms that us authorly folks do. It's it, hard science fiction is where you are speculating a little bit, but you are sticking very close to like actual laws of physics and and like what's known today and extrapolating a little bit maybe adding an extra element uh that uh we don't have today that makes some of this stuff possible but the extra element isn't something really crazy um or really uh far-fetched and so that element uh in terms of the hard science fiction for this i think is is something around the energy sources that people in the year 2075 are using they're they're actually able to have gone through several different cycles of finding next generation energy you know beyond even just the stuff we're talking about nowadays where they're they're like finding energy from hydrogen and all kinds of all kinds of things even to the point where there's a kid who's like taking seawater and putting it into a thing thingamajig and somehow he's making rocket fuel so <laughs> that sounds a bit crazy, but you know it's that's why it's science fiction. So, it, it, in that whole frame, there's a lot of different types of stories being told: the office romance, comedy dramedy type stuff is really how it starts, and then somehow suddenly by like the end of this thing, it's like this gripping drama that then ends in sort of this uh, meditation on humanity and peace and 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 just all of the the sort of common threads that bind us all together and so this is you know if you think about um if, if any of you guys are familiar with vinland saga which i promise i will stop bringing up because this is about planetus one of the things that both of these series have in common and it, it's really i think a hallmark of, of yukimura in particular is he has this real gift for blending in sort of slice of life vignettes and stories with this broader, more dramatic narrative. And you, you see that in both of these series. You know, there's a lot of downtime, I think, that in the hands of, of a less skilled storyteller could be really boring <laughs> to watch unfold. But, you know, you have a really, you know, a really strong cast of characters that helps support it. And it takes you on a bit of a ride that you're not expecting, certainly not from the first couple of episodes, even though it starts to hint at pretty early that it's going to be a little bit more than like, here's a bunch of lovable idiots in like their little office, like take, you know, catching the trash, which is what they do. They catch space trash. 
and and so just to to kind of like get add a little bit more of a frame around the discussion and like what the series is about it's got all these elements and they they blend together so so easily and there's there's other shows that have attempted to do stuff like this that i just i think maybe have been more or less successful but not many of them are quite as successful as planetess has been to do it i think there's like big broad kind of thoughts but ink what's uh what's some of your impressions god i hated this the second i started watching it (laughs) (laughs) i I caught like a piece of an episode shown at a panel at a convention at one point and i thought oh man this looks really amazing and i really definitely want to watch this and i I put it on my watch list from then and i just had this is the first time i've watched it uh so thank you santa um by the way, thank you, Anime Secret Santa organizers, uh, Taiku Podcast, who took it up from the AGC Podcast, who took it up from Reverse Thieves. Uh, thank you, everyone up the ladder, for keeping this tradition going, because it keeps exposing me to fun stuff and making me watch stuff I have meant to watch for a long time. Wow. I didn't know all that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have been hibernating. <laughs> Um, but because the Gamers podcast did an excellent episode on this, or I'm assuming it's excellent. I actually haven't listened to it because I didn't want it to flavor my own thoughts before we talked. So I've, I've had the manga sitting on my shelf for a year, well, a year or so. And I was like, time to, time to dig in. Is it the two big omnibuses? It is from Dark Horse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it was, it was very personal and solemn and, like the action wasn't so actiony and there was like no real rom-com silliness in it. Like some romantic stuff. Yes, but not like humorous for the most part. Um, more workplace involvement and people's interrelationships. But uh, then I watched the anime and I was like, the fuck did they do to Planetus? <laughs> yeah, like... Because it starts off goofy. Mm-hmm. Like, just straight up goofy. Like, new person in work environment. And, of course, it's space, so all the usual adaptation, slow adaptation, acclimation things come into play. But the tone is vastly different from the manga in the first couple episodes. And it threw me. And this, uh, as I kept watching... I fell in love with the show more and more because uh, what actually happened was the anime began development and production before the end of the manga and uh, with the serialization. And in the beginning and middle of the series, and this is according to Wikipedia, the writing and production only had the first three volumes of manga as the source. So they had to fill in all sorts of characters and uh, storylines that kind of matched the tone of the manga and then had to rewrite them into the manga as it, like, caught up. (laughs) So uh, as I kept that in mind and watched and watched not only how they did it but what they were filling it with, I was absolutely amazed at how much I loved uh, the anime. And I was like, you know... It might be an uh, FMA versus FMA 2 thing where the manga is still my favorite for how personal and solemn it is. But I think the anime actually might be better for all the issues it addresses because I don't remember half of that being addressed in the manga. And I think they are very important issues that can and should have been addressed. The space, if you'll pardon the pun. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, hey man, you, you made it quite a while without any... Any puns? So I'm I'm beyond impressed um, with with your uh, your restraint there. But yeah, I I 
I also had that that reaction because I I've never seen the Planetus anime. I I read the manga years ago. I owned the manga for quite a while, and I had things happen and had to downside some things, and a lot of my manga had to go sadly, and that that was two of the manga that I bitterly let go of. But I I read those. Oh gosh, it was probably twenty. It was it was right around the time they first came out when Dark Horse released those big omnibuses, and. I was struck watching the anime the whole time kind of going did that happen <laughs> like like over and over and over I I was trying to remember like like where some of these people even came from because and in in saying that and now that I'm thinking about it more you kind of can tell where some of the characters I think are very very much in line with the the spirit of the manga, the original manga, and then, and then other characters are very much oh this is this is an anime character in a show that plays a role type characters. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah, like you can like almost kind of see like which ones are you know more or less created to help serve the the plot and moving moving each episode along. Um, and and I I would love to like I'm halfway tempted to like go back and buy it again, just so I can read it again and see, you know, now that I've just watched the anime, like just how different it is. But hearing you say that and that FMA comparison, I think is especially a great analogy because I I think that's I think that's probably what my reaction would be too if I had come out the other side of of you know really just listening to the manga and uh, or listening to the manga. Um, re- <laughs> reading the manga and 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 watching the um, watching the anime, and so um, I'm glad I wasn't the only one of us thinking that it was a little Twilight Zoney for for some of the differences. Oh no, and and then some of the differences actually made me laugh with uh, how they were handled. Because mm-hmm. speaking of some of the more anime insert characters, you had a whole bunch of ninja. Uh, who were unemployed, stranded people on the moon, I think. Yeah. Uh, These were weebs that thought they were ninjas. (laughs) And to to their credit, they they were doing space acrobatics, maybe like ninja. I don't know. Um, I am ninja. You are ninja. They are ninja too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Crumbles into dust. But there's, there's this wonderful joke and, you know, spoilers ahead for the next minute or two. Just skip over me talking until you hear Jared. There's a, a, a point in the manga where this test of a certain brawn engine for this new spaceship that's going to go to Jupiter is being tested and it blows up and it kills like an entire city's worth of people on the moon. And in the anime, you get to know that the, these ninja who did, weren't able to get jobs anywhere else finally got jobs at this great new testing facility on the moon that was testing an engine. And then you know where that's going <laughs> because the, the, the anime does not differ from the course of the manga. It just takes longer to get there because, you know, it had to you know insert a lot of stuff and tie it all up. But the second you know those goofy ass ninja are all working on the on the test engine that's going to blow up and kill everybody in that radius, it's a great dark laugh. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you value humanity and you had a cry, but I <laughs> I, I laughed. I, I was I was I was really 
I, I was like, oh, ninjas. <laughs> like when, I, when that happened, I, I, I was, I was, I was kind of sad about it. And, and they do, they do kind of, you know, in the last episode where everybody gets some kind of ending, it's like, they just like rapid fire tie up stories. Um, you do see one of, one of those ninja who, you know, in, in like Japanese culture, you have the photo of the person, you know, as part of the memorial and the photo is the guy in his like ninja weeb get up and, you know, like his wife is, you know, praying over his grave or his memorial, but she's doing like the ninpo kind of like hand thing. I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a ninja expert or ninja scholar, but people who know ninja things know what I'm talking about. And that was kind of a funny, kind of funny awe kind of thing that I really liked. Uh, and, and I agree with you. I think that the added characters do elevate the work and it speaks to the quality of the production crew too. And like the writers, because they could have screwed that up real easy, you know, like the number of adaptations where they go off script and it sucks. There's a whole lot more of those than there are ones where it actually works out. Okay. But 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 I agree with you. I do think this one is one of one of the one of the good ones, one of the rare good ones. That's oh, huge. Like uh, you you don't get the whole plight of the developing nations not being allowed into the first world space race uh, sort of bit, and you don't get that without Claire, who was a former half section member who actually worked her way into the control section, which is like the main portion of the lunar control. But there's the side story also with another person from her. Uh, country, uh, which was a, a very poor country, and they had developed this spacesuit that was like a joke by international standards, but had like actual merits to it that the privileged weren't willing to acknowledge just because, you know, it's, oh, well, you know, it's clunky and they're not in it already, so we're not going to consider them. It considers where flow of money goes, why and how money goes, and really the the horrible gatekeeping that uh, occurs in technologically advanced civilizations versus maybe new ideas from developing ones. And uh, it, the, like the introduction of all these characters uh, really, really helps that. And it's just absolutely amazing how much more rounded the series is because of that. That is so true. And Claire's story, her whole journey through the 26 episodes we, we that we have, um, boy, that's a rare thing to see nowadays. Um, unless it's a shonen thing and it's 800 episodes. Her story, I thought, was just super compelling. And honestly, it, I think it's probably one of my favorite character arcs in the show. It might be my favorite character arc because I just there's there's so much there, and and the the geopolitical dimension of this how earth politics even when people have made it to space and people are living in space earth politics still controls their destiny as much as it would anybody on terra firma and her whole kind of journey from you know trying to make it work within the system becoming disillusioned with that system and then all the things that happen kind of in that course of her story you know, I just I thought I thought she was just really compelling, and she she kind of her journey kind of takes you through the like you could kind of look at her character arc and see the whole narrative character the whole narrative arc 
of the series kind of track with that in a lot of ways. Yeah, and in diverging ways too, because there's not only the issues uh, specifically connected with that arc, but there's also tangential lines of thought because it comes in with the ecology factor too and the age-old question of why are we spending so much money to send stuff up in space when we should be concentrating on trying to feed people down here and you know the resources are getting depleted and we're not changing any aspect of how we use the resources we're just changing the resources we use and i love love the fact that this was you know all right in there and all so tightly connected with her reasoning and her journey throughout the 26 episodes yeah because oh my god when, when spoilers again when she goes from space agency to terrorist to reform terrorist i i kind of didn't like the whole reform terrorist thing I would rather her still go straight for the ideals and kind of end with that. But she comes to this realization that's kind of cliche, but you know, it's a show. Yeah, it is. And, I'm, and, and I, I think that the, I, I think that leads really well to sort of what the soul of the show is because that redemption kind of thing that she, she has it, w- one of the main, the main moral point of this show is that, human humanity we're all connected like space space connects everybody and we're even sitting here right now we're in space um you know and the the earth is one big big ship right yeah, i mean we've heard that in other mm-hmm. places but the 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 philosophical sort of ideas of connection and our common humanity really binding us all together is one of the more powerful themes of Planetess. And I think that, you know, and I agree that her redemption is a bit cliche, but it also kind of fits in line with the moral imperative of, of the series, which is to say that, you know, we're all one people and even, even she can kind of come back from that and, and, and sort of rejoin humanity slash society, which you know, she at the beginning of her arc, she starts out, you know, desperately trying to get to be one of the elite. And she's this career minded woman that really just focuses on that to the exclusion of all else. Um, she has a prior relationship with with Hachi uh, that we don't get a lot about. We get kind of like bits and pieces about it. But essentially, you know, they they just were irreconcilable like their life goals like began to diverge and and they went on different paths although i think it you know it does seem like there's points where she she questions not only ending that relationship but maybe the path she's on a couple of times mm-hmm. um in in the the evolution of of her character and and so i think she's a really great vehicle for exploring the overall theme you know, just by looking at her arc and, and then, as you said, Inc., those diverging paths, too, where you start to to really get the sense of world building, you know, with with the things that you learn about the ecology of these different um, lunar bases and, and the society that's kind of building up in these places, how tight quarters it is, how even though it's it's on the moon uh, and it's this far away place, these these places, these these lunar cities are still quite small and so it's almost a small town orbiting the earth in some ways is the way it kind of kind of was represented yeah and like you said it it has to go back to 
because it, it does reconcile itself with the manga and the manga's main take is you know that whole thing of we are alone in this vast darkness um for for our limited reach which is you know just beyond our planet you know as far as survivability goes even taking this you know 50 years into the future where okay we've we've jumped to our moon which is like nowhere in terms of space you know you look at the blue marble and that's it and that's that was a core of the manga there's the manga used so much of the blackness of space and just to to focus on these very tiny objects the tiny object that hits the plane that starts the whole thing and kills yuri's fiance or wife the pocket watch that he goes searching for that she drops out in space, the the blue marble against the, the infinite blackness of space, just so important to bring that under the the realization of the reader. And it does does so with a great tone of respect. You know? And I didn't mean to say like it was cliche for a bad reason. It was just, you know, it's a cliche turn. But if she didn't realize that and if the character set didn't realize that redemption was possible, then that message would have been lost, honestly. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think it would have, in losing that message, if, if it had played a little differently, it would have sort of diluted the message, um, mm. you know, of, of the overall story. I think, too, one of the things you mentioned was the, the incident that led to Yuri, who's one of the... the one of the office uh, folks in half section, as they're called, um, led to his wife dying. You know, essentially, it's like this tiny little pellet of debris. This like you know, maybe bullet sized bit of debris. It was a screw. It, it was a screw. Yeah, it was something really small. But you know, in space, uh, you know, with no inertia to stop it, like it basically hits into it. It flies into something really fast, like a bullet, really. And that tragic moment really emphasizes a point that's made frequently uh, in, I think, both the, especially in the manga, and I think it's really powerful in the way that you just described it, Inc., but, but also in the anime, there, there's a fragility to life. And that fragility is you know, really present in space, but not, not just space. Like, there's just a fragility to life, period. And mm. it, that's another major theme that we see over and over, as is um, when, when we think about the earth and how omnipresent it is in the story it's kind of always there to remind us quietly remind us of of the main theme of like how we're all we're all connected because you you look at the you look at the earth and several characters make make this statement at some point but there's no you don't see borders you don't see you don't see countries you just see the earth and you see humanity's home and and what a powerful statement that is um and and so it does these things it would be easy for a show or or a manga to just be really like ham fisted with it you know um and and it gets close a couple of times i think in the anime but it but not it 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 comes close to the line but not over it and i think a couple of things that help that is the amount of comedy that the uh the anime puts into the material because there's this one episode where it's life insurance day and (laughs) All the life insurance agents are like swarming the moon offices, I think it is. And, uh, you know, there's like five agents per person on the moon. And they're all like trying to get them to sign up because they keep reminding them of how deadly their job is. And what are you going to leave your, you know, family after or when you expire in space from this hazardly job? 
and I, I couldn't help laughing and just admiring how well the weaving of mortality is in that episode. I was like, you are taking an issue where, like with Space Brothers, where if you listen to the other old Taku in Space episodes, which you definitely should, and they're available on Patreon, and you can go subscribe to the Patreon and listen to them all. Um, they deal with Hibito, who's the younger brother, who's an astronaut, and his writing of his will and his brother's discovery of that will very differently and very solemnly. The anime, and I'm not sure if it's in the manga or not, I can't really remember, deals with wills in a very different way. Not necessarily entirely comically, but definitely comically in the st- in the form of one will being just sort of this drawing of a spaceship that the guy wants. And, you know, that uh, that whole life insurance day thing. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of love the contrast because what that what that shows you is to, to, to talk about it you know, through the frame of Space Brothers. In the time of Space Brothers, even though it's set in like our near future, which is increasingly now um, as, as time marches on, astronauts are taking their first tentative steps to the moon. You know, you could almost you could almost imagine something like Space Brothers taking place 50 or 60 years before Planetus does. And by the time you get to 2075 in the world of Planetus, where going to space is kind of just something you do. It's like going away, you know, like you can you can go to the moon and, you know, people that live there um, and the astronauts that live there and do commercial work, there's. There's not there's training and they're they're very they're very skilled, but the the romance of it, the very, very elite sort of process that that the early astronauts go through um, and have gone through historically and even and even in the time of Space Brothers go through, you know, it's kind of kind of just a job now. It's kind of like driving a forklift, but in space and there's lots of OSHA stuff you got to take care of. But it's that's it. Like all of all of that sort of awe and wonder about astronauts themselves is waning. I wouldn't say it's all the way gone because there is quite a bit of romanticism about astronauts, mm. particularly particularly through the lens of this guy. He had the best name in the whole show. Um, yeah, it's 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 like the the sensei guy. Um, yeah, Gegalt Gumblegosh. I think is what the guy's name is. I mean, yeah, he could be like a Hogwarts instructor with a name like that. But he he's like this the scion of the earlier age of space exploration and almost kind of a bridge between that earlier kind of pioneering sort of sort of spirit that, you know, the the early space program here has had, the right now today our actual space program has plus the one, you know, in the in the near future in the world of Space Brothers. You know, but in, in the world of Planetus, it's it's he's he's a dying breed. Gagaldi Gangalagash. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, he's the potions professor at Hogwarts this year. I mean <laughs> that the name like that I mean, and some of the names some of the names are pretty wild <laughs> in this show. Not not Gundam, not Tomino Wild, but like cause that's just a whole other level, but but pretty wild. Yeah, one of the uh one of the characters which is in the the half section Arvind Lavie, Arvind Lavi, unfortunately takes a kind of stereotypical uh, view of Indian people, where of course you know because he's Indian he has seven children waiting at home, but kind of emphasizes or, or you can view him as a metaphor for most, like because because he has a, a large family at home, and I don't think many 
other people have kids in that office. Or at least uh, Fee does, but you don't see Fee's child, I don't think, in the anime, only in the manga. But with him, you get the direct connection of the next generation, all the people waiting to take on the Earth after we go, and who needs space to be made safe for their exploration of it. So there's, there's a good direct metaphorical link with that character, which I really love. I just thought it was really questionable choice to do that stereotypical thing. Oh, he's Indian. He's got a huge family at home. Yeah, that was, that was, that was less than ideal. And he is the goofiest person on that crew. Yeah. Like him and almost a clown, but no, very much a clown. Like, like he and the, the, so he's like the assistant department, department manager or something. And then you have like, the blonde heavy dude who maybe is American or something. I'm not sure he's, he's like the head guy. He's about to retire. And I never really bothered to like get their names because they're just sort of like the assistant manager guy has, has some story, like story things happen with him that like, like they're kind of just like, Hey, we need some kooky office management types. (laughs) You know, let's let's throw them in. Yeah, and with Lavi and uh, Philippe Myers is the person you're talking about. Uh, his nickname is Marshmallow. Um, <laughs> you also get body also shaming get the, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You'd also get the star insert character of the of the anime, who's Eldegard Rivera. She's she's a temp worker with the heart of gold and the backstory of. Pure darkness. <laughs> yeah, her backstory is wild. Absolutely it's, it's, wild. Exactly. It's hilarious to watch it come to light over the show. I loved the running gag of her, like being the only serious person in the office, but all of a sudden in one episode, you just see her take off her office coat and she's wearing like S&M gear. Yeah, like, she, like she's going to be yeah. somebody's hostess or something. Like, Yeah, <laughs> like casually walking out. Yeah, and it's like, and it's just like, it's like, it's just like normal. Nobody really reacts to it. She just like completely changes her whole look like right there in the office. As soon as she, as soon as it's five o'clock, she clocks out. That's sort of her trademark of being like hyper punctual. And she has this wild backstory um, that people should just go watch because it's, it's too, it's, it's, it's like, you always want to think it's like something silly. And then like Ink said, it is like super, super, super dark. But then because it's so super, super dark and her character is so shallow, like her, she really has nothing to do with much of the, the anime except for being there and being a gag. But when even when they introduce her super dark backstory, that then makes that a gag. <laughs> it's like, I don't like making fun of that, but, you know, it was funny because it was out of nowhere. I mean, like, like literally so wildly unexpected from what you would think that that her story would be and and you're right like she does she she is so sort of like one dimensional for so long that you know by the time you get around to her story it's you're mostly through the show and yeah. and and you're like well that was just random and it almost feels like hey i need to like set this character up to be able to do things later and they're they're conveniently placed to do that, right? Um, mm. So let me add some development here, <laughs> and and you know, I, and and it it may not have necessarily been that way. Like she might have, you know, that that might have been in a 
in, in somebody's mind for a long time. But um, but I I think she's probably if because of course there's two there's two things we need to settle very very quickly very very serious business. One is the best girl question. I do think she's she's my vote. The other is I think she's also the one who's most worthy of having a spinoff manga. Like where definitely we just see her do all her weird jobs. Yeah. And she's exactly the same, like gives no fucks, like, like no expression half the time. Like, I just, I just want to see that slice of life manga run for like three volumes and be, be done. 1000% agree. That would be so much fun. And the, 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 the great thing about having so much space afforded by her time in the office is you could have that much more space to fill in with all the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We haven't talked about the villains in this, though. No, no, we haven't. And, and like, we, so we started talking about the darkness from Edelgard's, like, kind of thing. But that's a good entree into the hard science version of, of I don't know why I kept, like, seeing these guys like they were, like, the the Xeon people. But, <laughs> like, mean... they, they, they gave me those vibes. Anyway, give a little overview on, on the baddies. So the main baddie is capitalism, uh, because capitalism is driving all these uh, horrible factors uh, from discrimination and exploitation uh, of people and resources. Uh, And kind of the head of that is Werner Locksmith, um, because he's German, so you know he's evil. Um, He's the CEO of the Jupiter mission and the chief designer of the Von Braun Jupiter Exploration Spacecraft, uh, which is the main, what takes up most of the second half of the anime, and I think the majority of the second half of the manga as well. Um, But it's the main vehicle for the uh, exploration. Um, But basically, he is a hard numbers... Uh, the ends validate the means sort of guy. Um, so he doesn't care what happens to anyone working on that project so long as the data gets there and he can make whatever needs to happen happen. And that comes at the cost of literally hundreds of thousands of people um, where he knows he can't really be replaced, so he's free to be as big of an asshole, an apathetic asshole as he wants to be. And he is. He just, like, straight up does not give two shits. And Dude's a straight up just, sociopath. I mean... Oh, he is. Like, straight up. And he's portrayed, and I love the way he's portrayed in the anime. The voice actor, um, who is it? Um, Unsho Ishizuka? Uh, yes, and Dave Malo in English. I did not listen to the English dub. I actually uh, did. Oh, how is he? I oh he was. I thought he was really good. There, there were some performances in the dub. Well, we can get in the sub and dub performances in a minute. But I think I specifically I thought he did a great job. Mm. And the uh, the it's it's very good in deadpan and with just sort of this degree of disassociation from humanity that just seeps through every delivery and every line of dialogue. And, and it's not off-putting to all the characters. Even the main, one of the main characters, Hachimaki's father, who ends up working with Locksmith, ends up working with him because, precisely because of that amount of dedication and uh, sort of the vision he has. He doesn't agree, I don't think, with the loss of life attached to it, 
but he sees him as someone with a defined vision who knows what he wants to do and is going to do something great. Now, that comes on a grayscale level of good and bad because you're obviously coming, there's a human cost associated with it, but my God, he's he's just the perfect embodiment of uh, capitalism-focused development. Yeah, there's there's a lot of he so he definitely 100% like the the root of all of this is the economic uh inequality between the more uh industrialized nations and and the developing nations not unlike at all the uh the discussions you hear about the divisions between the global north and global south um in our modern context today and that struggle also gives rise to a to a resistance to to space exploration in general through a, a band of of terrorists called the Space Defense Front and they are one of the other antagonists of the story very much opposed to the speed and the unequal uneven way that space development is progressing uh, in the 2070s. They're led by this sort of shadowy mastermind who's a bit more shrewd than you would think he would be. And I, I found that interesting because he's he's got an agenda that maybe isn't necessarily purely altruistic or like, you know, principled. But a lot of the followers of of this movement who we find even some of our our well-known and liked characters to be in the cast kind of end up being either drafted into or sleeper agents for uh, this movement. Um, Mm. You know, it's, it's a really good antagonist because from a certain point of view, you can understand why people, particularly people who are, are not getting a, a equal share of the benefit of space would have these kinds of concerns you know that the, the argument being that you know all the resources that are being expended for space could could be used to improve conditions back at earth you know it's hard to argue with that but the the methods and means by which these folks pursue their agenda lead to a lot of the drama that you find at the end of the series and really really test our our two our two main characters. So, I mean, Hachimaki, um, Hachi, the, the, the main guy, he's definitely kind of the main character, but Aitanabe, who, who's his sort of apprentice and then becomes later, uh, spoilers, becomes later his uh, girlfriend, is, is also, you know, you get a lot of, of her driving the story as well. And in that terrorist movement, you have two kind of, kind of nemesis characters for them uh, that end up kind of, developing through the course of the story and skip over this bit if you don't want to be spoiled on it but claire who we talked about earlier actually ends up joining the terrorist movement and has always been a bit of a, an antagonist to i you know mostly because their personalities rivals and their, in love that's right their, their personalities and values are so different but also i think there's a little bit of you know like like you know, she she was the, the woman after with with Hachimaki, and you know that there was always some tension there. But definitely, the main driver was this just diametrically opposed viewpoints, like world viewpoints, where I really does believe in. You know, I is also a word, a Japanese word for love. I think most of the people that listen to this show know that. But 
she really does that's like the center of her sort of whole philosophy personal philosophy and claire by contrast is much more much more focused on class and the structural inequalities of class and much more of a of a of a realist or a, or a cynic in some ways and so they just they just don't mix well at all um and so you can almost look at like in in storytelling terms claire is sort of eyes shadow she's she is she is like the other half uh of of the of the argument uh that i represents in terms of you know really she's very thematically close to the actual overall theme of the show that we talked about of being connected and you know always reaching out a hand and 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 staying connected to people but um the other kind of dual kind of main protagonist shadow situation is between hachi and hakim who we learn is a member of this terrorist organization he's a security guy he also learned from Gilbert Gobbledygook, whatever his name is, um, uh, you know, and so they have a lot of bonds, a lot of things that co- tie them together. And and they they have they, they are on friendly terms until Hakim kind of reveals himself to be an agent of of this this terrorist organization. And you see very quickly this really diametrically opposed views, but it's more, it's less about like the core of who they are. And it's more about what their motivations are because Hakim and Hachi are actually quite a bit alike. They just, they have different interests. Those interests pit them against each other. And one of the things we find out, and one of the things I think it's really interesting as we get later into the show is how Hachi deals with his own inner demons and Hakim, in a lot of ways, kind of represents part of that in in terms of of the conflict, the outer conflict uh, that that Hachi wrestles with with his inner demons. But we actually even have a a, a shadow Hachi <laughs> that starts to show up um, that even drives some of Hachi's behavior towards the middle end of of the series. Yeah, and I love some of those sequences where he's fighting his consciousness. I think that was some of the most beautiful visual work within the series. Absolutely. Kind of fighting for his soul in some ways, you know? Yeah. Against this sort of, I'm going to get what I want and damn the consequences sort of thing that you see from Locksmith or from, uh, from Hakim, you know, he, he starts to go down that dark path and, and you see it kind of hollow him out uh, in some ways. And, they don't really put a lot of an exclamation point on this, but self-harm, suicide, trigger warning. But he does go out and uh, in a suit towards the end of the series and, and seems perfectly fine with ending his own life, having like the guilt of thinking that he killed Hakim, that you know he led, led himself to a situation where Hakim got blowed up. We actually learn he's, he's okay. And you know really, like he sacrificed everything that's, that, that really... That, that was his foundation he and, and kind of lost sight of what was really important to him trying to chase being in this von Brown mission thing and um, it kind of comes out of nowhere in a way it feels like like halfway through the sh- halfway through the series we see this we see this conflict like really really crystallize for him 
but I, I think it's a very universal type of theme, you know, where you, you have a dream and you're working hard towards that dream and maybe it's not coming true and you're just, you're, you're thinking of giving up or, you know, as his younger brother, like absolutely nails it when they have a fight. Oh, by the way, Hachi has a younger brother who builds rockets and it's kind of a genius. But he says, I forget exactly the words, but essentially the message was you started working towards your goal and as soon as you found something that was even like remotely close to your goal, you got comfortable and you stopped. And as soon as Hachi hears that, it kind of sets him off on this path. And um, I think a lot of people can identify with that sort of struggle. Like don't don't give in to your shadow self and like try to like turn your back on all of your friends and like go walk out into the moon looking to run out of oxygen. Don't do those things. But uh it really is a very interesting, like structurally, the conflicts I think are very interesting. And when you look at the beginning of the show, you got like no idea some shit like that's coming. <laughs> yeah, and you said it came out of nowhere, but I think it was a lot of it was a it was a very good convergence of a lot of or three specific things. Uh, the brother, like you said, calling him out. Um, the how how stuck he felt at his job, and then that. Uh, sudden opportunity, which, you know, he was invited into uh, by people around him. And it's like, you know, he's, he's, he's a legacy because his father was a super engineer. Uh, so people already sort of expect great things from him. Plus, he's really adept at space. He can, he can move and work in space like nobody else, uh, in part to how long he's been doing his EVA job at, uh, for, you know, half section. So, all of this is coming together and just providing that one perfect pivot point for him. And he takes it. Unfortunately, in deciding to take it, he has that tunnel vision where he, that's all he focuses on from there on in. And he ignores his love. I, um, and you know, for whatever reason, here's the, the tunnel vision. He has to keep working towards his goal because his, his main character motivation is getting that spaceship, which costs a lot of money. So he's got to have a good job to do that. So he keeps ruining every other aspect of his life and his own mind in order to achieve that goal. Meanwhile, everyone's trying to reach out for him and try to remind him of that humanity, which is so much of the series. And, uh, you know, I... I I don't think it comes out of nowhere. It's just a hard pivot, and it comes at a very calculated moment. You know, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. And we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the, of the show. You know, Yukimura has this weird kind of genius about being able to take all of these lighthearted things and slowly, subtly pepper in all these important details that suddenly when stuff gets real it all ties together and you're like, Oh God, <laughs> what mm-hmm. happened? But you're, but you're right. Like it, it was premeditated and it was, it was telegraphed a little bit. Like, like this is what I think is so great about the storytelling here. It's something that you can look back and go, Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> but like when you're in the moment watching it, like it hits you all at once that they, they tie all these themes together and you're like, I'll be damned. They got me, you know? <laughs> and you know what? Something I didn't think of until you said ju- that just now was because uh, I always thought Claire's pivot towards the end was out of nowhere because when she sees I 
and recognizes that Lunarians, who there are very few, but there are people who were born on the moon and uh, kind of very fragile human beings on their own because they don't, their systems don't work well. Uh, their physical systems don't work well. She kind of pivots into caring about people on the moon again. And I, I, think, I think she's just taking for granted how strong most of humanity is and then all of a sudden realizing that all of humanity is not as strong as it seems. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that Claire's arc, actually, that I saw coming, like, like for sure, because that one... Mm. That one, it felt like as soon as we had that that episode with the inventor from her home country, and he's basically treated like a second class citizen who like is getting ignored. They're like doing the minimum amount they have to 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 you know hear him out as far as his um, EVA suit and all this stuff. All, that meeting for her was very fateful, and and really from there on. And even in that episode, you start started to see her character shift and evolve, like in in real time, mm. a little bit. And so every episode after that, it felt like there was another like little little cut for her of, you know, this system is never going to accept me. It's never going to appreciate me. And then then she went all the way with that, all the way over to the other end from where she started. But I still think it's really really. It's not. It's. It wasn't hamfisted at all. It was very subtly done. It was. It was done with the right level of expectation, but it was authentic. Like when it happened. Like, it's not like she suddenly had a heel turn and and like, you know, oh she's bad now. <laughs> she was never really oh, no, no. bad. You know, she just gave up believing in the system that she put all her faith in, and and what was missing for her that I had that was able to let I kind of keep persisting in the face of, of losing all despair is, is that, you know, I had hope where, where Claire kind of lost it at one point and really struggled to get it back. That's the thing though. I don't think it was I that turned her. Like it was definitely a step in there because I carries Claire from a, uh, a crashed escape pod out of the, yeah. Uh, I- I don't. I, the, I don't mean brawn. to say that. I don't mean to say that I was what changed her. I, mm. I'm just contrasting the two of them. Like, like. Gotcha. Cl- yeah, gotcha. Claire fell down because she didn't have the faith that I did have. But yeah, the point yeah. you're making is very interesting too, though, because there's also that point though where like, like Claire and I, I has this dark moment of the soul uh, moment that I thought was one of the most powerful moments in the whole series. Oh, so good. Where. So good. She's carrying Claire, who's wounded, trying to carry her on her back in one-sixth gravity uh, to the lunar station or to a lunar station to get help. She's, she's SOS'd. Nobody's coming. She's running low on air. And her, she is like seconds away from running out of air. Yo, Claire, Claire wants to die. She says all these hurtful things to get I to, to just drop her and 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 go about her business but because of i and who she is she refuses to do that and in so doing she's exerting herself more than she could have or she more than she would have calculated and now she's running out of air earlier than she thought she would than she thought she would and so we find out like all the way to like the very end of the series 
here comes some more really critical spoilers that um, I chose not to take, even though she could, and for a minute it looks like she could and did, take Claire's air canister and use it to like get her the rest of the way to safety. And it's a really cool parallel kind of setup because on the other end of that, the, the Hakim Hachi kind of clash, there's a moment where we think Hachi's murdered Hakim as they've been brawling um, when the terrorist organization springs their big trap and tries to, to, to take over and, and sort of derail the Von Braun mission um, and, and slam it into the moon and kill a bunch of people. It was a great parallel setup of conflicts. So good. So good, right? And, and they both, like, they were both, like, left in suspense for both of them for, like, mm-hmm. a whole ass episode. <laughs> and then, like, you, you, you start to, like, right at the end, you, you, like, we have a little skip in time with, with Hachi, and he's, you know, on the crew of the Von Braun mission, and he's, he's hollowed out, and he's, like, barely existing, and that's when we find out about his kind of actual choice, which he would have shot Hakim, but, you know, the station started blowing up, and they actually got separated. And then they show the resolution for I ending up being that, that I actually chose not to take Claire's air tank and, you know, just started suffocating, just started, you know, running out of air, very much shades of Hibito from Space Brothers. And Mm. she had severe nerve damage from that, actually lost the ability to walk for a while. But luckily they both survived because help did come at the last minute. There is a uh, a shot I love in there. There is an inside the helmet view with a reflection on the helmet of the lunar scape and the approaching vehicle on the horizon or, you know, looking very closely at her helmet and the reflection on it. Uh, but in either way, you see her eye on the inside and it's probably one of the most detailed shots you get in the series. That's not of something mechanical. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's such a great shot. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's, it's a really beautiful moment. Those, those moments are so poignant and so powerful and so well executed. And, you know, again, that's, that's what makes Yukimura just damn good. I mean, he, he can just, he can do the goofy things and then he can just like waylay you with something like that. And his use of perspective, his use of color, his use of space is just masterful. And when you read the manga, you know, and this was my recollection. I, I think you might've written it more lately than I have, but I would love to know your view. Like, you read the manga, you start off with the first volume, the first few chapters, and you can definitely tell he's like growing as an artist and like his maturing his style. It's not very detailed yet. Like it, it, it doesn't have like if you if you like looked at like later Planetess chapters or even Vinland Saga, you see like this massive evolution in his artistic style. But his but his sense of space and his sense of perspective have always been pretty good and like I feel like he he really learned and mastered his own style during writing Planetess. And as much as uh, Yukimura is to be lauded for the entire series and the product or the the idea, the concept, the original manga, you also have to give it up to Goro Taniguchi, director from Code Geass, Maria the Virgin Witch, and Eskriad, for making all the divergence work. In this in this show, because it is 
it is it is all over the place but it connects and that that's you know honing the ability of an uh, like a good editor is to be able to know how to make the author's voice work in a more succinct way to you know cut out the fat connect things in ways that are in concert with the way the author intends or how uh, how their original voice projects Goro Taniguchi just did a fantastic job of keeping Yukimura's original vision despite all the new content and storylines and the pacing in this thing never suffers like whether it's a, a fun episode a tragic episode or you know, a reflective one everything just melds and interweaves so bloody nicely like you've said uh across multiple times on this podcast like it, it's just so the talent on this project is amazing yeah i mean goro goro taniguchi absolutely elevates this work in ways that definitely you know as all editor, all all great editors do they see the cut beauty of the diamond in the rough and they they polish and they help shape and every good writer needs an editor god bless editors um and you really see like these two great artistic talents coming together and making something beautiful. So what else do we want to say about Planetess Inc.? I think I've hit all the, uh, of what I've still wanted to say. You? Did we talk, did we, maybe we did. I, Cause I know it, I know it came up. Hibito's PTSD from Space Brothers and kind of contrasting that with the spatial loss oh, disorder. No, okay. Yep. Yeah, Cause you mentioned the PTSD, but we didn't talk about the spatial loss thing. I, I do think touching on that really quick is is worth worth a, a, a note. What were your thoughts on how that was handled in Planetess, contrasting it with how Hibito's experience went with Space Brothers? It's definitely a lot more romantic uh, in Planetess. Uh, the spatial loss disorder kind of goes in uh, end of Evangelion, or the <laughs> end of Evangelion, not end of Evangelion, sort of route, where it's a lot of hallucinization and trippy internal dealings uh whereas space brothers it was very much just straight out fear and physical reaction and how that affected his relationships with people it was a lot more realistic um Mm. i didn't think either one was bad but i i i did think it went kind of off the rails tone i don't want to say off the rails tonally but it was it lent a degree of fantasy to an otherwise very solidly hard uh, sci-fi thing. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to say, sure, it was dreams or it was paranoia and he was slipping into that, but it wasn't necessary. It was effective, but Space Brothers was just as effective with nothing but straight up reality. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think Space Brothers did it better. Uh, they also did it later, so you know they could have learned from Planetess not to do it that way. But you know, it's uh, it it was what it was. I I loved the I loved the I loved the sequences in the spatial loss disorder with Hachimaki, but um, I, I felt they were a little loose and maybe too romantic. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. I, I like you. I loved the sort of psychological journey and the and the the way that's represented in, in, in the in the anime. The biggest problem I have with that and the, the most like bullshit thing I'll call 
in terms of the romanticism of it is that really the cure for Hachimaki's spatial loss disorder, which is supposed to be this career ending thing that, you know, they talk about it almost like it's a death knell, you know, from the doctor's perspective. And then, um, you know, Gumblefudge, uh, Grimbleface, whatever, whatever that guy's name is, um, you know, he then says, well, you know, I got this idea that'll help him more than him doctors will. And, you know, essentially what it is, is to show Hachimaki the Von Braun rocket, the big, the big super, super duper rocket that they're going to use to take to uh, Jupiter. And he puts his hand on it. And like the minute he does that, it's like this, and they even like show like a little spark or something, but it's like static shock. (laughs) Yeah. Like that, like transforms his psyche and suddenly he, he's broken free of the, of the spatial loss syndrome. But I do like, and, and that, that in isolation, I thought like, I looked at that and I'm like, bullshit, but what they do with it, Inc., I think is really interesting because everybody thinks that that's a happy ending like I is is like happy because it looks like it finally something reaches him and he's able to find a way through it. But in reality, what what it's done is as as he's been doing battle with himself and his own darker self, where he where where that part of him is just like, you know what you need to you need to go after what you want above everything else and and to hell with your friends, your family, your new girlfriend that you've you've just gotten together with after a slow, slow burn and just damn all the consequences and just go after what you want about everything else and let the ends justify the means. And like, that's where he ends up going. Like it's, Mm. it's not a a good thing really. It's like, yay, he's broken through spatial loss syndrome, but he's done it by basically abandoning his humanity and, and that core thing that, you know, he's been learning more and more about through his relationship with I and just being around her and, and just his experiences throughout the series. Yeah. He basically swaps with his shadow just to gives up control. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and, and that I think redeems it a lot, but that whole moment was like, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Now I think I've, <laughs> Now I think I've said everything I wanted to say. And so I guess now it's, 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 it's question time. I think it's question time. And uh, we didn't want to put out any calls for questions because, you know, this was a, a secret reunion tour. <laughs> so uh, we asked our fellow Anagamers in the, the Anagamers Discord, which totally free to join. Just come on over and it's a lot of fun. A lot of people talking. And Evan Vampfo Minto asked... How would you compare its depiction of the workplace to other anime series about work? And what outlook on labor and people's relationship to it is this series expressing? Wow, that's a really good question. I'd expect no less from our lovely boss. Certainly certainly would not. That, that guy, he's, he's, he's a little smart. Well, Ink, why, why don't you take it first? Because I, I want to think about it a little bit. I got, I got a little bit of an answer, but, but I'd, I'd be really curious to hear what you've got to say. I don't know how many other workplace anime I've really watched. Um, like I can, I can like a lot of comedies straight out. Um, it's, it's a lot less focused on the work itself as opposed to the why, which is why I think, uh, the series excels. It's more focused on 
why people are doing the work for who and what benefit actually comes back to them versus civilization and what civilization is comprised of you know who reaps the benefits therein so it's it's a it's a much wider net than most anime ever take to now keep in mind i've not watched a lot of gundam and i know that has a lot of similar themes but um i have not so and as what outlook on labor and people's relationship to it again it's it's looking for who people are working for and why it's it's the greed that reaps people's talents and kind of pushes them to excel so that the right things can be built for exploitation and what gets passed down um yeah um it's a tough question yeah i mean it's 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 obviously expressing the point that we're looking at the wrong ways of doing things because i'll always come back to the resource deplenishment uh statement where you know we're not looking for better ways to use the resources we're just looking for different resources to use in the wrong ways and uh, that I, that has stuck with me through the, the whole show because that's kind of the central core concept. Is like we are always a very reactive species. And that certainly goes to show with how the climate is, is just catastrophic danger right now, uh, if not past that point. And we still don't care because we're not, or a lot of it, or at least the people who matter, quote unquote, aren't feeling the extreme effects yet. But when they do, then things will start to change because suddenly those people are feeling the effects. And I think more or less that is exactly what the series is expressing. Yeah, no, I, I, those are all great points. And I, I, I take broadly the same view. I, I think if, if I'm thinking about how work is depicted and, and the specifics of, you know, of that, part of Evan's question, I would say that it takes a rather dismal, or yeah, rather dim or dismal view about work and about the the value of the worker. The thing that I think is a, a pretty reasonable extrapolation based on what we know today, you know, as, is that companies, these big companies um, are yet even more powerful in the space era in the you know the late two uh, the late two thousands or well late late twenty first century I should say than they are now which is you know kind of staggering to believe but even to the point where there's like you know collusion between what appears to be some sort of of more militaristic UN type you know governmental entity um, we don't ever really get a lot more into that but it's called in into I think is what it's called. And it's essentially a militarized UN that doesn't run the whole world, but it's it's definitely this overwhelming superpower. And then you've got you know smaller countries who it just is continuing to absorb. And there's a lot of collusion between it and companies like the one that uh, that our half section folks work for. Uh, and and we see this sort of Game of Thrones like political gamesmanship within the cor- the company culture that's very much very much corporate America today take it from me I can guarantee you and so you know a lot of the different frames it places around work and the relationship workers have to their work I would say it's pretty pretty dim 
I think that a lot of, in terms of the second question, the outlook on labor and people's relationship to it in the series and like how that's being expressed, I think that is really by extension. We see a few different characters with different relationships to their work. Claire has a relationship to her work where she's extremely career driven and she puts all of her emotional and mental capital into uh, trying to grow her career until she just has this reckoning moment and sees that no matter how hard she works, she's never going to be able to to progress or become one of the the nobility, so to speak. And you know, contrast that with somebody like Hachimaki, for example. He's he's got this big ambition he's working towards, and he he comes to a similar kind of understanding of you know throwing his soul into his work and kind of abandoning everything else but like you know he does it in a way that you know he kind of comes at it from the other direction but but the end result for for both characters is the same they they come out of the other side of that you know a bit um older wiser maybe even a little chastened about focusing on the wrong things and that the work is Maybe not the most important thing, but it's it's the the real why behind what we do, and and the and 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 thinking about the work instead of you know being just a job and something that you get for economic survival, but thinking about it in, as more of like following your calling. Which even Claire, by the end of the show, you know we we see her um, talking about getting ready to. To, to transition into more of an educator, educational type role where she's going to want to, you know, make sure that kids have books in her home country. And because she says the one thing it needs mo- more than anything is education. And um, so she's, she takes that activism in a positive, constructive way that, mm. that is more driven around her, her real like personal moral compass. And then I think Hachimaki does the same thing on his end. And then, then some characters, you know, they have this sort of humorous relationship of their work, like our, our division chief and our uh, assistant division chief. And then you have Dolph who we haven't even talked about Dolph, but Dolph is like essentially the half sections boss. And he ends up through a series of events, becoming president of another company, which he was the president of a company before. And he got, and they got bought and, you know, he bought in, literally bought into the system for a while. And then he decided to, you know, he didn't want to play the games that the, the other, you know, VP types were wanting him to, and, the, and even the president of his, of his company, former company wanted him to, to play. And he decided to form, to take the company that they had put him as the head of and, and spin it off and make it independent of his, his big conglomerate company. Um, what I what I found interesting in terms of golf was his uh, the play on ego there, because like everything in the series, nothing's white or black really, um, but the uh, his decision to take the company independent, uh, or at least remain not under the umbrella of the larger company, um, was you know hey I'm getting promoted from president to vice president. And, you know, the, the, the way the corporate spin is, it's like, yeah, but you're going to be vice president of this, you know, multinational conglomerate, not president of some rinky-dink company. And, uh, 
he's there's a large ego thing at play there so it's not necessarily all like good for i want to keep the independence of this company it's like mm, uh, big fish small pond still better for me even though you know he obviously has the better moral choice in mind but still the reason he backs down from that deal is specifically that change in terminology so that kind of speaks to the egotism of humanity as well yeah and so I think when you look at the cast of characters and their their relationships to work, you get a bit of a slice of just about everywhere along the spectrum, really, from from mm-hmm. the relationship to work. But I think I do think in broad terms, when you look at the power that corporations have in the world of Planetess, and you look at how how much of your ability to live is really based on what kind of company you work for. That is a, a not great outcome <laughs> um, where, you know, increasingly, you know, people's entire like lives and, and their 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 worldview, their definition of their life is all framed around what they what they work for and what they do, which is very common in the United States. Like we one of the first things you always hear people say is, well, what do you do? Like that's like the mm-hmm. most foundational thing possible. And it probably shouldn't be. So so I think it does a really good job of within that sort of dismal kind of future looking at all of these different gradients along the way. And, and, and I like that you mentioned that there's not really a lot of black and white in, in planet test. There's really not like probably the most, the most ca- kind of character like that is probably I, and she even, I think certainly by the end of the show is, is maybe not so, you know, fiercely passionate like like trying to tell everybody else they're doing it wrong <laughs> because they they don't prioritize the same things she does but yeah that's it's probably the best answer i've got it's a great question though so that is uh the show uh it's been a couple of years since we've had the chance to do one um we are uh working on finding finding a rhythm for us to do this in a way that doesn't derail any of the other things that we've we've both started doing in the time since we last were with you dear listeners hey jared what have you been doing since the last time we talked to our dear listeners oh well um launching a a career as an author uh is probably the 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 biggest i mean i did move to florida god help me um but my career as an author, um, very, very, very nascent career as an author, I would say. But if you really, really, really want to know what I'm up to, um, you can go to my website that I need to update, uh, which is jarednelsonbooks.com. I have a very basic website up there, but it does have info on how you can find some of my work. Um, I am in two different anthologies, one that came out last year uh, in an anthology called Modern Magic. I have a story in that called How the King of New Orleans Lost His Hat. It is a bit of a modern fantasy kind of story where it's about a street magician that has a magic top hat that he can pull anything he wants out of. And I'll let you take it from there uh, to see what happens to him and how he loses his hat. Um, Another story that I have in another anthology that just came out, which is in a series called Particular Passages, 
that series just came out with an anthology of autumnal themed stories. The title of the anthology is particular passages, Autumn Breezeway. I promise that I will be updating my, my page to have a link to that one as well. Uh, Cause I need to, but one of my very favorite stories about Melvin Jones, the werewolf accountant is in that story. It's uh, in that anthology. It's called a taxing moon. And it's all about Melvin just trying to exist on tax day, which happens to be a full moon. And he's really just trying to get through the day and not eat anybody. He's, he's kind of a reluctant werewolf, much more interested in the golden girls than he is, you know, trying to, trying to run around in the woods and, and, and be a, a, a really cool, edgy wolf man. So those are the those are the two stories that are out now. Those are the two anthologies that are out now. Next year is going to see me working on my first novel. The goal is to have it drafted and edited at least uh, by the end of of the year. If I'm lucky, uh, I might even try to do a small Kickstarter for it uh, to to get it out into the world. Um, so definitely stay tuned to that. And have um, your money ready, folks. <laughs> And I'll, I'll go ahead and throw my social media out there now. There's the website. I also have Jared Nelson books on Instagram. And you can also follow me on Blue Sky, which is kind of back when like Twitter was Twitter and it was actually not a cesspool. It's kind of like that. I'm really, really enjoying being, being back in that kind of environment. But you can find me on Blue Sky and I believe my Blue Sky handle is either Jared Nelson Books or it's just jarednelson.bsky.social. But yeah, so that's that's the big thing is is the author work. And uh, I'm not the only one though with some stuff going on. I think our friend Ink has has a little has a little ditty he might want to tell you about too. Uh, let's see. In two years, uh, I I've I've fell in love so stupidly happy right now i can't possibly describe it except that i kind of did um while i was in the process of falling in love i was also reading some takaboku who's a, a modernist poet from long ago in japan and while reading his stuff and falling in love i got all this emotional overflow from both directions and uh it all kind of spilled out in short form poems that um since confessing and consummating uh, the relationship, I wanted to get that small collection of poems that I'd written during that time, uh, was trying to get that published, and it only took two submittals for Alien Buddha Press to jump on it, and they have published it, uh, so that's available. If you go to uh, Amazon and type in Pining Alien Buddha Press, uh, it should bring it up. A small collection of uh, love poems and poems about kind of mortality and facing love in the latter half of life. The, you can read through both sections kind of circularly, and they influence how they are read. I also, in the very first uh, portion of this year, got a, a small, weird collection called The Vessel of the Now, published by Backroom Poetry in England, and they did a very short run of it, and it sold out, or I've sold out all my copies. I'm not sure if they still have any copies. You can go to backroompoetry.co.uk they may still have copies available and I'm working on a full-length collection uh, content to suffer or content to suffer 
it's a dual book, so you can read it from both ends, and it starts with the same poem that goes in different directions and then has differently themed poems based on those directions. Uh, yeah, and as always, I'm curating Stanza Canon, stanzacanon.com. It's a, an audio journal for poetry. Uh, no written words, solely an audio experience. Uh, and that's been a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, it's been a good year. 2023 has been a good personal year uh, for me. Yeah, we even saw each other in person, believe it or not, earlier this we year. We did! It was amazing. Inc. came to Birmingham, Alabama. I, we, Both of us traveled to Birmingham, Alabama, which is, as longtime <laughs> listeners know, my hometown. Um, we went hiking, I treated him some good food, and now Inc. is the number one Koneka sausage fan north of the Mason-Dixon line. <sighs> So good, guys. Go to Koneka. Go, go to Koneka. <laughs> go to Alabama. Get yourself a Koneka, a Koneka muffin with cheddar. Uh, no, it's a biscuit. It's a ch- Koneka sausage and cheddar biscuit. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, it's so good. Oh, God. I need one of the, I'm I'm going back in a couple of weeks. Really excited. I'll uh, be there from like the 19th to like around the end of the year, first of the year. Uh, and you best damn believe I'm going to be up at O'Henry's. <laughs> <laughs> writing away and uh and noshing on some Koneka sausage biscuits um also got to go down to momocon for the first time ever uh where i, I chilled with uh basil and uh a whole bunch of cool people down there um absolutely enjoyed meeting everybody uh charlie uh chief among them too had a great time hanging out with him um but yeah, so good year, and it's it's just amazing to be talking with Jared again here. Uh, nostalgia bug hit when we started talking about doing this, and very happy to be doing it. Don't know when we might be able to do it again, but uh, you know, the it's not a not a definite no on anything. Yeah, watch the skies. You know, I think yeah. uh, that this is definitely, I think, a new chapter in our evolution of the show um you know so really excited to you know liking said just just the the thought of finally being able to get back to doing this was so great and you know we we had talked about and even if going back and listening to that last episode from 2021 which is still emotional for me to listen to um you know we had we had talked about you know if life had ever kind of gotten us to a point where we would we would be able to to, to do this and balance some of these other things we wanted to go after and do, um, then we would, we would find a way. And, um, you know, like Jurassic Park, life finds a way. So uh, here we are <laughs> and uh, don't know when we'll be back, but uh, definitely, definitely leaving the door open for that. Um, and I, I, yeah, just watch the skies and uh, see what happens. And we will uh, see you next time on... Otaku in space. <clears throat> uh, okay, sorry. We have another great title to discuss in store for you, but first... Space news! Laser gun noises, rockets... Okay, cool. Um, I have not read any of these. We are doing it live. Let's let's grow and learn together, shall we?